The reading tonight is from Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you were his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her, or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of her house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Temptation. I wonder what goes through your mind when you hear that word. I think this is one of two or three passages in the whole Bible that deals with temptation quite as thoroughly as it does. The others are the stories of Jesus' temptation in the New Testament. And perhaps it's no coincidence given that the Joseph story, though it happens thousands of years before Jesus was born, echoes so closely the story of Jesus. It clearly points forward to what is coming. Joseph, the forgiving prince, the heir of the promises of God, is treated wrongly time and again, and yet because of the harm that comes to him from those who should love him, he brings them salvation. It's a pattern we'll see through uh, this uh, whole 
section from chapter 37 onwards in the book of Genesis. And right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's this temptation story. And so too here with Joseph, who is a sort of echo of the Savior, albeit an echo long before the fact. So too, Joseph's real story begins with a temptation, a severe temptation, and one that he nearly loses everything for resisting. I don't know what you think, though, when you hear the word temptation, what, what springs to mind? I'm always sort of reminded of that Oscar Wilde quote, do you know it? I can resist anything except temptation. Just listen to this uh, that Oscar Wilde said in The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is an extraordinary book if you read it. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. There's an awful lot going on in there. Uh, And if you pay careful attention to the argument that's being made, you end up in a really horrific place which is that you should deny yourself nothing that your heart desires. And when you think about some of the desires that are out there in the world, that's terrifying. But to a a, a sort of elite sort of intellectual like Wilde, it's a lovely idea to play with. And he is dealing with something real that resisting temptation doesn't make it go away, it often makes it worse. What does this story of Joseph tell us then about temptation? I think it's put here precisely to show us what kind of person Joseph is and why it is that God is able to use him so mightily. He is... Well, let's put it this way. Through the book of Genesis, you have uh, the creation of the man and woman. They're put in the garden. They're in relationship with God. All is wonderful. Uh, and yet they, are, they face temptation. They give in to that temptation. Uh, they find themselves exiles from God's place, cut off from relationship with him, uh, and subject to death. Uh, and then in chapter 12, God promises a man called Abraham that through him he will turn everything that's been overturned back up the right way again. He'll restore human beings to relationship with him. He will give them a place. He will give them life and posterity. And here, in Genesis 39, we get a clue as to what the Savior who will finally come as the end of that promise will do with what went wrong in the garden, with that temptation in the garden. But I get ahead of myself. If you were here last night, last night? If you were here last night, what were you doing here? And why didn't the alarm go off? If you were here last week, 
Uh, if you were here last week, you will no doubt remember the story of Judah and Tamar. It's quite a hard one to forget. But this story is a sort of mirror image. Joseph is a sort of mirror image to Judah in, in, in that story. So Judah is um, absolutely at the mercy of his own desires and impulses. He sleeps with his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. But he is also someone who is prepared to do wrong because he thinks that by doing wrong, he can get the outcome that he wants. So he wrongs Tamar twice, actually. Uh, And the first thing is that he thinks that maybe doing for Tamar what the law requires him to do for Tamar, giving her his next son, is too risky because, well, she's been with two of his sons and they've both died. And so he chooses not to do what he ought to do because he wants to preserve his son because he thinks, well, God has promised you know, sons to Abraham and here is my descendant who is going to be part of the answer to God's promise. Does that make sense? So not only do we see Judah sinning uh, in terms of his own desire, we see him sinning in terms of his own desire in one sense for what's right, to do good, to witness the promises of God coming true. Joseph is the complete mirror image of that, as we'll see. And yet there's this thread that runs through these first three chapters of the Joseph story, which is all about cloaks. And again, uh, we'll, we'll see uh, that too. Should we dig into it? Let's do that. So, what happens? Well, we've seen, uh, finally, we've been waiting to see what's going to happen to Joseph after his brothers have sold him into slavery, uh, and now we're here. He's been taken down to Egypt and been bought by Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. So, uh, this is a really senior person, a cabinet member, a member of Congress, the captain of the guard, you know, field marshal, Potiphar. He has bought Joseph as a slave. And then having not really been present in the narrative up until this point, apart from uh, when uh, God briefly breaks in to slay Judah's two firstborn sons because of their wickedness, suddenly we see God present to bless. So again, you see the mirror image. Judah's sons uh, have uh, been cursed by God, but Joseph is being blessed. Uh, And so God's name suddenly starts turning up with great frequency in verses uh, two to six. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes. From that time, he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So, 
terrible things have happened to Joseph. His brothers have decided to murder him, but then found that it was financially more rewarding to sell him into slavery. And now he, here he is as a slave. And yet, in the midst of all of that, suddenly God turns up and he's just blessing him and blessing him so that Joseph rises to become number two in the family of one of the most powerful men in Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth. Their plans to curse him have resulted in his blessing. He has the run of the place. All Potiphar has to do is choose from the menu. Verse six. Because Joseph is just so successful and so blessed in everything he does. He has found favor in the eyes of his Lord, verse four, or in the, in the eyes of Potiphar. But now at the end of verse six, we see him find favor in someone else's eyes. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. There's the temptation, but it is a multifaceted temptation, as we shall see. And it's also worth noting at this point that um, if you have heard certain kinds of uh, Uh, kind of claims that are made about the Bible, Uh, I just need to refute one more of those, which is the idea that um, women are presented as sort of temptresses and sexual aggressors in the Bible is very rare indeed. Uh, Men are much more frequently uh, portrayed as those seeking uh, sexual satisfaction in inappropriate ways. But on this occasion, and for a very specific reason, we do see a woman in a sort of temptress kind of role and as a sexual aggressor. And she is the one in the position of power in this instance because she is the wife of this enormously important and powerful man. And she notices Joseph, who is, let's remember, a slave, and says to him, come to bed with me. That's the temptation but it functions in at least three ways. And as we look at Joseph's response, we'll see what they are. First of all, what do you see? Verse eight, Joseph refuses. Why? He says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one in this house is greater than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God. Now I wonder, do you notice anything? If you know the book of Genesis really, really well, and I mean really well, you will notice something when you hear that. Let me just take you back to Genesis chapter two and verse 17. This is what God says to Adam, the man he's put in the garden. We'll start at verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Do you pick up the echo? Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, your husband has withheld nothing from me except you. And it's echoing what happens in the garden where God says to Adam, you can eat any fruit from any tree except this one. 
In other words, this is not just the sort of run-of-the-mill, kind of hormone-laden kind of temptation story. There is something much bigger and much deeper going on here. We're being pointed back to the very heart of human sinfulness and to what has gone wrong with the world. And Joseph is offering us the antidote. So if you read on from Genesis 2 into Genesis chapter 3, uh, and you uh, hear what the serpent says to the woman in the garden uh, as uh, he tempts her to take the fruit that has been forbidden, he comes to her and says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. God says, there's only one thing I'm going to withhold from you, and it's that tree. And if you eat from that, you'll die. And the tempter comes and says, are you really not allowed anything? The fact that there's any restriction becomes monstrous. God is, that's the Oscar Wilde thing. Any kind of restriction on your desires is, is monstrous, and you make it monstrous, and it will devour you unless you give into it. Well, the serpent comes to the woman and says, is God really so mean that he will give you nothing? And the woman says, no, 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 it's just this one tree. But if we eat of that, we'll die. And the serpent says, no, God is lying to you. You won't die. God knows that if you take that fruit, you'll be like him. Now think about what's going on with Potiphar's wife. She's the only thing that Potiphar has withheld from Joseph, rightly. She is doubtless, as the woman saw the fruit was, pleasing to the eye. There's desire, she's desirable. But she is also the only thing that differentiates between Joseph and Potiphar in Potiphar's household. Just a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 35, verse 22, Jacob's son, Simeon, sleeps with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, Absalom, David's son, chooses to show that he is usurping his father. His father will no longer be king over Israel. He will be king over Israel. And how does he do it? He has a tent built on the roof of the palace and there publicly sleeps with David's concubine. There is a power grab on offer. Joseph, why should you be less than Potiphar? Why be number two when you could be number one? There is an act of power on offer. You can get one over on Potiphar, the slave owner. He thinks he owns you. You could show him. 
Do you see how there's more going on? And so there's the temptation not only of desire, but of power and of status, just as there was in the garden. That's deliberate here. And actually, what does happen is also on the table. That there is risk for Joseph, the slave, in refusing his master's wife. Because there are a few things that have fury, like this woman scorned. And she is so angry at his rejection that she decides to destroy his life all over again. Now, Joseph is a smart enough guy that he saw that coming. Joseph is so sharp that he was able to provide food for Egypt and the surrounding nations during a seven-year famine. If there's one thing Joseph has got, it's foresight. He knows the outcomes of his actions. So play this into the temptation as well. Joseph, you've been sold into slavery, but you're prospering. God's blessing is working itself out in your life. Do you want to throw all that away? You know what will happen. She'll destroy you. Isn't it better just to give in so that good may result? You can carry on ministering within Potiphar's household. Think of all the good that you're doing. Do you want to throw all that away? Do you want to end up in prison again? What do you think they do to slaves who get caught out like this? It's a huge pressure, isn't it? Think about how those pressures play in in our own temptations. Pleasing to the eye, good for food, things that are desirable. Well, sex is obviously one of those things, isn't it? Where there's a powerful desire at work and it feels like sometimes, doesn't it, as if, if you don't somehow feed that appetite, if you don't somehow relieve that pressure, you'll go mad. The desire for power and status, the desire to take illegitimately what you cannot gain legitimately. Works itself out in using people to get ahead. In using underhand tactics. Lying about others in order to make ourselves look better or to gain ourselves opportunities. Or the desire not to lose something good. Because sometimes it's not what you gain by giving in to the temptation, but what you fear you might lose by not giving in, isn't it? Your boss tells you to massage the figures a bit. If you don't tell a lie, then that deal is going to fail. And if that deal fails, then we're going to have to lay people off. And guess who's going to be at the top of that list? 
that's not a totally ridiculous suggestion, is it, that that could happen in your life? Temptation is not some kind of easy thing to just sort of swat off like a fly. It digs right into the very heart of you, to the things that you value most. And that's where Joseph helps us so much. Because what you see is that Joseph's battle with temptation is not one in that moment faced with Potiphar's wife. It is one in every moment leading up to it. So what does he say? No one's greater in this house than I am. My master's withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It's how he thinks about the world that actually keeps him from falling into this destructive sin. Think back to the garden and to the temptation. What the woman Eve is invited to believe is that God is lying to her, that God is not generous, and that somehow she can achieve equality with him, the outcome of sin will be to her benefit. Joseph sees through all of that. The ingratitude that says, you know, everything's been held back from you. You know, you need to reach out and take something for yourself. Joseph's full of gratitude. He practices gratitude in his life. He sees the blessings that are his. He recognizes the reality of what he's being invited to do. What does it really look like? Well, it is a wicked thing and a sin against God. If you name something like that, it's much harder to then go through with it, isn't it? Come on, let's do this wicked thing and sin against God. But that's what's always involved. Here's the thing. Essentially, what Joseph shows us is that the antidote to temptation is not an iron will, but love for the God who generously gives us all good things and whose word is true and who can be trusted and who ultimately blesses those who trust him. Joseph believes in God, he believes in the promises of God, he believes in the word of God, and he believes in the goodness of God. He believes in God's grace and his kindness and his generosity. It is simply love for God in the end that makes Joseph say no. And when Potiphar's wife keeps coming back and saying, well, what about now? He keeps saying no. Because he values God more than anything else in his life. That's where the cloak comes in, isn't it? If there's one thing everybody knows about Joseph is that he had a bit of a thing for cloaks, right? Now the whole sort of clothing motif runs all the way through uh, Genesis. 
But here's the thing. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household, household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. He left his cloak in her hand. If you've read the last two chapters, that sounds like a thunderclap. Joseph left his cloak. Last time Joseph's cloak was taken off, it was by his murderous brothers, and it was then used to to persuade his father that he was dead. Lies about Joseph with cloaks seem to be a recurring theme, don't they? It's the cloak that Potiphar's wife uses. And yet so convinced is he that his love of God is the thing that matters most in his life. He's prepared to lose the cloak and his reputation and his freedom. Nothing matters to him the way God matters to him. Uh, And that's why I say that it's in the days, the weeks, the months, the years leading up to this moment that Joseph is prepared for this moment. Because this is an expression of who he is. Someone who knows that God is good and can be trusted and is there to be loved. In the end, friends, we don't win our war with temptation simply by putting things in place, simply by, you know, sort of making ourselves accountable to each other, simply by putting blocks on the computer so that you can't access the things that in your better moments you know you shouldn't. Those things might all be useful tools, but they don't address the problem in your heart, which left unaddressed will mean that somehow or other temptation will always beat you. It's a battle of the heart. And so it's a battle that starts tonight, isn't it? If there's something you're fighting with in your life, the battle starts now. Will I let God's word shape the way I see the world? Will I plead with God to so fill me with his spirit that I will love him above everything, that nothing will matter to me like he matters to me? In the end, that's what it's all about. Do you notice in the passage that Perhaps you haven't, no reason you should have done. I pointed out in verses uh, two to six that the Lord's name keeps turning up. It then disappears all the way through until the very end when Joseph's back in prison and the Lord is with him again. It's almost as as though for a moment you're taken into Joseph's, uh, to use a rather overused phrase, lived experience. There you are with him. You can't see God at work, but you see his faith. God's name isn't mentioned at all, but the writer studiously once puts in the word God on the lips of Joseph. He's living by faith. He's living by what he knows is true, even though he can't see it. 
Every prayer you pray, every time you read the scriptures, every time we sing together and encourage each other in God's goodness, we're building up strength for the fight against sin in our lives. And yet perhaps the most wonderful thing of all in this is that despite the worst that people can do, despite the strength and the profundity and the horror of human sin, God is at work in the midst of all of that to bring salvation to his broken, sinful, wandering, foolish people. And I am one of them. And it is God's amazing grace to sinners like me that offers in the end the most powerful weapon we have in the fight against sin in our lives, isn't it? The temptation is to believe that God is not good and that following him will not in the end bring blessing. That following him in the end will not be for our good. And yet I know a God who loved me so much that even though I was running away from him, wanted to worship myself, not him, loved me so much that he gave his only son, gave him up to death on a cross so that I can live. If you can't believe that a God like that is good and generous and loving, perhaps you haven't yet understood just how deep his love for you in Jesus really is. But it is deeper than the deepest ocean and wider and more wonderful than any human heart could ever imagine and let loose on you and on me, it will transform your life and my life. So Joseph is a model to us, he he models Jesus, but he models also that the battle against sin carries, it takes place here in the heart, and in the end, it is a battle of loves. So let me lead us in prayer. Father, though we hate to acknowledge it, we hate to face up to it, the reality is that any sin in our lives speaks to a lack of love for you. And we know that love for you is the thing that you command above all else, the thing that you desire because you desire relationship with us and you love us so intensely. Father, we long to know your love so that our lives, our, our hearts and our lives might respond, might reflect back your love to you. Lord, we yearn that we would See sin in our lives for what it is. See the horror of it. Just see the grief of breaking relationship with you. 
Father, we pray you'll teach our hearts to love you. Help us to yearn for you more than anything. And Lord, you know how hard that is for me, for each of us. Our hearts are so prone to wander off after other things. But Lord, make us individuals and make us a people who love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.